Hey, it's Morgan. I just wanted to take a quick moment at the top of the podcast to mention that in addition to being a PA and a human trafficking and sexual assault subject matter expert, Ms. Rodriguez is a busy mom. So you may hear her kiddos in the background of the recording every now and again. So just a heads up on that. Now on with the podcast. Okay, so today on the show, we have Shante Rodriguez. Thank you so much for being here on the show. Do you mind introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about yourself and your pronouns? Sure, absolutely. So yes, my name is Shante Rodriguez. Um, I have been married to my husband for about 13 years. Um, We have a just amazing daughter, six-year-old. I've been a PA for six, wow, 16 years. It's crazy saying that out loud. So for 16 years, I've worked in um, emergency medicine, women's health, um, and I am currently the director of Women's Services in New Life um, Community Center in Queens, New York. Wow, definitely, definitely an impressive career. Being in emergency medicine, I'm sure you've seen your fair share of things. Yes. So I first read your article back in AAPA, gosh, I think it was 2019, where you were interviewed about your experience um, working with survivors of sexual assault. We're going to dive into that a little bit in a moment, but I wanted to see if you could tell our listeners, how, how did you get involved in this line of work to begin with? Yeah, definitely. So um, before I went to PA school, I actually worked as an EMT um, and just, again, just really just fell in love with the field and just, you know, decided to go on to PA school. And so while I was in PA school, I had an opportunity to just kind of look at different mission trips and different things around and just knew I wanted to travel and also provide medicine to other um, areas that, you know, did not have medicine as readily available. And so once I graduated, that was kind of like my platform, Um, you know, like, where am I going to go? You know, I wanted to get into community health, but also very dear to me was women's health. Um, And so with just coming off of EMS, I love the emergency room. I just kind Mm -hmm. of felt like it was a place where I can kind of see a lot. And then also we know a lot of times if people don't have insurance and, you know, they don't have a regular doctor, they wind up in the emergency room. So I Mm -hmm. kind of felt a little bit of those two worlds marrying each other. Um, And then later on in my career, I did get the opportunity to, you know, travel to other countries and also provide medicine there as well. So it's, uh, it's been a very rewarding career. I can, I can only imagine where were you able to travel? Um, so I have gone to Nicaragua, Honduras, and India. Oh, wow. You've been doing this since PA school, essentially. Have you been doing it pretty much, you know, every year, every couple of years? So up to COVID, it was every year. Um, I haven't traveled since 2019. Um, and like I said, at this point, I have a six-year-old, so that makes it a little more difficult. (laughs) May not be traveling for the next few years, you know, which is fine. You know, we all have seasons of life and this is my season right now. So I'm happily, you know, accepting it. Um, but yeah, prior to 2019, I did travel every year since about 2010. Um, and most of those actually all of I would say 90, 90% of those trips were um, medical trips that were geared toward um, victims and survivors of trafficking. Wow. Okay. So let's let's 
dive into that a little bit more. When you were looking for organizations to work with when you're doing these travels, did you choose that in mind or is that something you kind of stumbled Yeah, completely stumbled upon. Um, you know, I always just kind of amazes me like how I even started on the road of um, even understanding what you know, human trafficking was. And so I had no idea what human trafficking was. It was kind of just like this, you know, foreign idea of something that may happen somewhere else mm-hmm. throughout the world. Um, I had no real understanding of it. And so when I was looking for just different trips to go on, I saw that this was a, it, it was a woman's trip and it was like women serving women. Mm-hmm. And it was team that was specific of women doctors and PAs and nurses and, you know, just people who wanted to go into community and serve women. And I was like, yes, that's right up my alley. And so a little bit of a disclaimer, once I got there, it was like, okay, and this is why we're serving women. And it was like human trafficking. And so my jaw basically hit the floor. Um, I came right out of my chest. And so actually being submerged in it in that way, because I think if I would have had full knowledge of what I was walking into when I did, I would not have just in fear of what is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can tell you being on this side of it, once I did become involved, there was no way that I could no longer not be involved. Yeah. I can see how it's very, it's very overwhelming. You're like, where do I even start? Can you, can you describe kind of what the experience was like, what you were doing? Uh, yes. Yeah, so that first trip was a, again, it was a medical trip. There was probably about, it was large. It was probably about 35, I think of us. Um, I would say maybe half of us medical, half of us not. Um, And so we actually went into brothels and invited women to come out um, for medical exams. And so we had an entire GYN outfit with us. So meaning we did pap smears, we had a pathologist with us. So within like a 24 to 48 hour turnaround, we had the results of those pap smears. If there was anyone that looked like they were cervical cancer, we did actual leap and colposcopy procedures there. So we actually brought the whole nine yard. We brought everything with us so that we weren't just diagnosing and then leaving without a resource. We were actually diagnosing and treating to what we could. And then anyone that required you know, any further, um, any further treatment, because also we were testing for STDs. So, you know, we had some syphilises and HIVs. And so we Mm -hmm. were plugged in with the local community there as well, so that we could continue to provide like ongoing care or that they could get ongoing care. Um, Again, if there was any kind of STDs, we had medication with us to treat that we had it again, it was an entire outfit. So we had dental, we had, um, uh, GYN, we had family medicine, we had pediatrics. And so we went down fully prepared to just be ready for kind of whatever was going to be in that community, because we knew this was, and this first trip was in Nicaragua. So we knew it was a very poor country. We knew that there was very limited resources. So we, again, went down with the kitchen sink. (laughs) (laughs) And that's true. And those, like you said, resource poor areas, you kind of have to be ready for it all and prepare for anything that could could come up. Now, knowing that these were women who were victims of human trafficking, did that change your approach to the patient or how, how did that impact either the interactions or the care you provided? So 
it impacted me tremendously because it wasn't just women, it was children. Um, Mm. We when so when I say pediatrics, we were treating um, children who were being trafficked. We were treating Mm -hmm. women who were treating traffic. We were treating boys who were being trafficked. And so it impacted me in such a way that when I came back home, you know, to here, I was just like, this just can't be there. You know, Mm -hmm. like this just can't be a problem that just exists um, in Nicaragua, right? And so that's what kind of fueled um, my research. And so, yes, it was a very, again, intimidating place of this is so much bigger and so much beyond me. But it was also Mm -hmm. the understanding that, you know, I have these two hands in front of me. I have this amazing career in which I get to... Um, the privilege to step into people's lives medically and, you know, just counsel them. And so what can I do? Right. And I think sometimes as providers, we're so used to looking at something, diagnosing something, you know, and then treating something that when something seems beyond our reach, we just kind of shy away from it because we can't fix it. And so when I'm dealing with you know, survivors or victims or someone who is in a trafficking situation, whether it Mm -hmm. is, you know, a child, a male, a female, an adolescent, an adult, right? It's the understanding of like, I know their life is far above anything in which I am going to fix, but I Mm -hmm. have two willing hands to say I'm here to help. And so that is that it's that perspective that keeps me and which I encourage other people from being overwhelmed. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not about fixing it. It's not about solving the problem, but it's about being part of the solution. And we can only be part of the solution if we step in and try. That's a very good point to bring up because I I feel like providers, whether it's, you know, PAs, doctors, whoever, have this idea of, oh, I need to fix it all. I want to, you know, I want to fix it all. I need to fix it all. But like you said, there's, there's a lot of things that we can't change, but what we're able to do, certainly we can try. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I want to take a step back and you mentioned research. So tell us, tell me a little bit more about that. So I just, I honestly just came back and was just, you know, just searching everything I could on human trafficking. Cause again, I was so just heart tugged and intrigued and just, you know, again, it's one of those things that once it touched you, you, you couldn't ignore it. Like you couldn't walk away from it. Like I couldn't act mm-hmm. as though I didn't just experience everything I just experienced on that mission field. And so I just started researching and I found, you know, like, um, anti-trafficking organizations so that I would contact those organizations and, you know, can I sit with you? Can I come in? Can I learn about what you do? And, you know, as that started to dwindle close, I realized how close it actually was to home. Like I realized how much trafficking is right here in our very own backyards, you know, as I continue to work with other organizations and just volunteer with other organizations. And, you know, that research became just a wealth of knowledge of working with other service providers to then say, okay, this is a bigger problem right here, again, in my own backyard that I need Mm -hmm. to pay attention to. And I think that is a very common perception that, oh, like this isn't, this is an issue here in the US. This is an issue, you know, somewhere else. When in fact, 
like you said, through your research, you learned that no, it is, it's very much an issue here. What would you say to someone who was, who maybe has that, that view that, oh, this isn't, you know, a real problem here? Yeah, I would just say, <laughs> um, don't believe the hype. <laughs> you know, it is, honestly, it's, it's a myth, it's a lie. Right. Mm-hmm. It is. There's no other way to dispel that without saying it's just not true. Right. Um, trafficking mm-hmm. is. And, you know, I think another part of that problem is it's looked as though, well, this is a law enforcement issue. And to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, this is not a law enforcement issue. The criminalization and what needs to happen in punishing those that are traffickers. Yes, that is, uh, a, you know, a law enforcement issue. But the public health issue of, you know, everything else that's surrounding trafficking, that is absolutely where, you know, as providers that we can get involved and actually, again, begin to make a difference. Um, there was a just tremendous study that came out in 2014, um, and it was in the Annuals of Law. And this was like one of the pivotal studies that kind of mm-hmm. told us as providers we're doing a really bad job. But it was a good study because yeah. then said, this is how we need to begin to screen for trafficking, right? This is how we need to be able to see, you know, when someone comes in with trauma and abuse and we're not addressing it. And so, you know, just like with every other um screening tool that we have, right? I remember growing up in the 80s and unfortunately um, hearing of children being abused and, you know, children dying, right? At the hands of Mm -hmm. abusive parents. Whereas now, you know, 20 years or so later, everybody is, you know, taught how to screen for child abuse. And so I think it's the same thing with trafficking. Like as these walls continue to come down and we understand more and more that this is a public health issue, this is something that providers need to know. This is something that those who are, again, in medicine um, have the opportunity to actually see, then we can screen. And if we can screen, then we can help facilitate. Can you talk a little bit more about, A, what the screening process is and what are the tools that you learned through your work? Sure. So I think one of the bigger things is just also understanding trauma-informed care. Um, You can't step in to even begin to understand the trauma that somebody's going Mm -hmm. through or that they're currently going through without being trauma-informed. And so a lot of my training has been experiential because it's not something that I was ever taught in school, but it's more of as I've worked with more and more victims and more and more survivors, um, listening to what they've had to say in their experiences with medical professionals and then gleaning from that and understanding how um, I can get better and how we can teach that. And so um, I do teach providers on trauma-informed care. And essentially, it's it's the understanding of looking at a person, not through the lens of what's wrong with you, but rather what's happened to you, right? So just, you know, a quick example, like in the emergency room, right? We you know, a lot of times you have that, you know, the person that's on drugs or the alcoholic Mm. or, you know, your quote unquote, as we call them, repeat offenders, right? Um, That a lot of people actually may shy away from and say, I'm not taking that chart. I'm not picking that up, right? Whereas I would actually do the opposite. I'd be like, that's the chart (laughs) I want to go talk to. I'll take that one here. You take this one. Because, you know, a lot of that behavior Mm -hmm. 
or a lot of that is stemming from something that is trauma-based. And so if I'm going to go in with the same, you know, uh, body language and with the same, okay, what are you here for again today? Oh, you're just drunk again. Or, you know, um, whereas Mm -hmm. if I go in and just have a conversation and just look and just offer resources, um, there may be a day when that alcoholic will actually go to detox, right? There will be a day when that, you know, person Mm -hmm. that's addicted to heroin will go. There may be a day when, you know, and this is actually how I got started in becoming a safe examiner. Um, You know, when a person who's been labeled as a prostitute, oh, they're here again, you know, and they're saying that they've been raped. Well, let's sit down and actually Mm -hmm. listen and let's talk and let's hear, let's understand the trauma that is their life opposed to judging them for how their life is. And that's a, that's a fantastic point to bring up and something that I remember being, and I can't remember of course, which, which lecture it was in school, but I remember having a very short talk in school about trauma-informed care. And I'm sure this is probably something that's only recently been implemented in, in, medical education, but I think it is so, so important, not just with survivors and victims of human trafficking, sexual assault, but patients in general saying, hey, you know, these, whether it's, you know, trauma or bad habits, there's a reason that you're, that you're, that these things are happening. We have to figure it out rather than, like you said, condemning or criticizing someone for the decisions they made. Let's try to understand why those decisions were made. Right. And to that point, you know, it is usually just a talk, you know, in our schools or like, you know, and again, it was nothing that was taught when I went to school, you know, Mm -hmm. how many years, 18 years ago, you know, but now recently, you know, because it's like one of those hot topics, it's like, okay, let's say we mentioned it, but it needs to be a course within itself, you know, because there's so much unraveling when you talk about trauma-informed care. You know, as I said, I, I, you know, I direct women's services in New Life in Queens, and that is like an absolute um, criteria for anybody who's volunteering, right? They have to learn about trafficking. They have to learn about trauma-informed care. And then we're going to sit down and we're going to debrief mm-hmm. about that. You know, you're going to be well-informed. Be- why? Because the patients that are coming in need us to be, right? We're not in a place where we can just afford to no longer not know. Exactly. It's it's something that, especially with the community that you're working with, but like you said, with any healthcare provider who's seeing a patient has the potential to see someone who is a, a survivor or victim and needs to have at least some knowledge and understanding and, and practice in it. Now, I do want to take kind of a couple steps back, um, especially for for people who maybe, you know, have a a somewhat of an understanding of what trafficking is. Can you, in layman's terms, break down what what really does human trafficking mean? Absolutely. Um, So I'll start by busting the myth. (laughs) So everybody's or most people have seen that movie that the movie taken, you know, and where it's like the girl and, you know, her friend go over to another country and they get like Mm -hmm. ripped away from their environment and, you know, get put into a drug and sex ring. Does trafficking look that way? Yes. But essentially what is trafficking? It's one form of exploitation over another. So one person's um, exploitation over another. So meaning it's where one person uses Mm -hmm. another person for their own benefit. And that could be through any mean of force, 
fraud or coercion. And so when one person says to another person, whether it's through act, whether it's through threat, or whether it's through force or through lies, right? This is what you're going to do for me. And if you don't, Mm -hmm. this can happen, that can happen, this can happen, or this is why you need to do it. And then exploits that person because of their vulnerability and their weaknesses. When it comes to anything that's labor related, meaning domestic servitude, meaning, you know, somebody working in a restaurant long amount of hours and not getting paid um, or whether it's sexual, right? Someone um, mm-hmm. um, prostituting or being made to prostitute and, you know, somebody else is taking the benefit from that. Um, all of that is kind of encompassing in the word trafficking. So, you know, according to Polaris, um, there's 26 25, 26 different types of labor or human trafficking. So, yeah. So what I mean by that is, so there's those headings of labor trafficking and sex trafficking, but under those headings between the combination of the two, there's 25 different types. So, you know, you can say escorting is one, um, again, you know, street prostitution is one, um, Domestic servitude is another organ transport. So there's all these different places that mm-hmm. can be a um, a source of somebody being exploited for their vulnerabilities. And I, I think that's a really important point to bring up, just because, like, like you said, you used the analogy to the, the movie Taken, which is, I think, what most people when they think of human trafficking, yes. that's what they that's what they think of. When in fact, it's it's much. It yeah. includes so much more than that. Statistically, um, right now, um, there was a study that was put out um, that showed actually how familiar trafficking is. It wasn't the stranger, right, that was trafficking somebody mm-hmm. or you know trafficking a victim or survivor. It was a friend, a family member, a boss, right? It's not the person that jumps out from behind the bush and just snatches you away. But trafficking is actually very personal. And again, it's very near and close, you know, to um, to what people don't think. Um, again, someone can be trafficked. They don't mm-hmm. have to be moved out of their house, right? They don't have to be moved across the border. They don't have to be, you know, moved from one place to another. There's girls, you know, or victims that have been trafficked right from their very homes. It, it's almost similar to sexual assault and rape in that instance, and that it's very, very rarely like a, a stranger. It's usually someone who's familiar and close Correct. to the person. Correct. So let's say, a, a, you know, see a patient in the office, you're talking to them, and they've divulged that they are, or they've divulged that they're in a situation where they're, whether it's, you know, sexual, financial, and whatever they're they've divulged that they're in a, a situation like that how do how do you respond so i make it a habit to have a quick referral list of mm-hmm. anti-trafficking um organizations and like their numbers on speed dial <laughs> right? gotcha yeah there's you know all of us can be in the same pot but we're all doing a different part of the work And so if I've Mm -hmm. screened and someone, you know, again, divulges, you know, um, this is a situation that I'm in, you know, obviously the first concern is safety. And so though I will never promise somebody safety, right? Because 
I can't keep them safe, mm-hmm. but I will help them to understand that their safety is my, you know, is a priority. I'm sorry, that their safety is a priority. And in that, you know, I would like to contact, you know, my social worker and get my social worker involved, or I would like to contact, you know, um, again, this organization, because they have ways in which, you know, just like with any other situation that is an abusive situation, sometimes the easiest thing Mm -hmm. is not just to get up and leave. You know, what if there are children involved? What if the person sitting in front of me is a minor? Um, That is a whole nother subject because as mandated reporters and what we need to do about that, right? And so if it's an adult and this is what they say, then it's going to be walking down those channels to where... Um, what is it they're looking for, right? Because just because somebody says, Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, this is what's happening to me. Because again, a a person is not going to say, well, I'm a victim of trafficking, right? Right? Someone's not going to say, I'm being abused, right? But in my screening and in my asking Mm -hmm. and in my listening to their story, if they say something and I'm like, you know, I'm concerned about this. Is this what's happening? You know, again, is somebody, are you free to come and go as you choose? Do you feel as though somebody is controlling your actions, right? Are you afraid to be alone? Are you afraid to be with the people that you live with? And so again, there's hundreds of screening questions that you can always go through. But if any one of the flags start rising in that question, then it's like, okay, I'm now concerned for your safety. And because I'm concerned for your safety, can we walk down this next step? Mm-hmm. because they also have the right to say no, right? That's that's true. In the emergency room, I can't even tell you how many, and I mean, you know, a piece of your heart goes along with it, but how many times I've had women who have come in just battered, you know, mm-hmm. to the point of just scraping by with their life, right? And they will not, they do not want to call the police. They do not want to, you know, um, make any drastic changes. They're not ready to leave their situations. So as badly, though this has been disclosed to me and I'm ready to be like, okay, let me take you home, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. To get them out of that situation. When you talk about, again, trauma-informed care, it's, well, what do you want to, do you want to leave this situation? Right? Again, Mm -hmm. I'm not the savior, right? I'm not rushing into that person's situation and saying, okay, now I'm going to rip you out of everything that you know, because it's abusive. And now I'm going to, you know, put you here, right? Because that can also be just traumatizing. But it's letting the person know, listen, I am concerned for your safety. And these are some of the next steps we can take. Do you want to take these steps? Right? Because some person says yes, sometimes they say no. And sometimes they're, I'm not sure. Because they're not identifying as a victim just because I recognize them as one. Exactly. You know, it was, it was actually very interesting. I was listening to, and of course now I can't remember the name of the podcast, but essentially it was about when it was when the first study that came out that talked about sexual assault on campuses mm-hmm. and that showed that, you know, one in, one in four women would, when they answered the screening questions, would I, you know, identify and say, oh, you know, I, you know, I technically according to the survey, have the answers that say, oh, yes, I you know, am a victim of sexual assault. But if you would ask them, they would not self-identify right. as it. And it's it's interesting. I think that research came out in the 80s. And here we are all these years later where there's more, you know, there's more training. Like you said, there's more screening questions. But it's still really hard to get the, the patients to 
to see that themselves. And I mean, I think it's also it that goes back to recognizing each individual person's lives, right? So the situations that they grew up in, the situations that Mm -hmm. they're currently in, the reason in which, again, why they are where they are, whether it's been a cascade of self-decisions or whether it's been decisions that have been made for them. And so oftentimes, because, you know, whether it's fear, guilt, shame, threat, right? Um, A person is not going to consider themselves a victim, right? You also have Stockholm syndrome, which is very real, right? You'll have, again, and you're right, studies that came out in the 80s, right? Children who were severely beat, severely, Mm -hmm. you know, sexual abuse, mental abuse, emotionally, physically starved, but yet loved their parents, right? So they would never, you know, when you think about these these um a person who is in these again any mm-hmm. one of us looking from the outside traumatic abusive relationships right to them this is normal everyday life it's about trying your best to acknowledge and understand their experiences at least up until that point correct and so and that's where i say you have to really bridge the person in front of you And so Mm -hmm. if someone says something and someone says, you know what, yes, you know, again, or answers yes to a screening question, you know, you never want to ask a question out of just pure curiosity. I want to ask a a question because I want to understand where you are. And so if you say yes to one of the questions, and again, I'm concerned for your safety, I may ask other questions about that question because I'm concerned for your safety. You keep telling me, yes, you have never said you're a victim. You have never said, yes, I'm in trafficking. But all of those flags are already going off in my head. And I'm saying, okay, this is potentially a trafficking situation, right? As providers, it's not our job to prove trafficking. It's not our job to prove abuse. It's not our job to prove that any of these things are happening. Mm-hmm. But we do collect the information. And once we collect the information, well, then now what do we do with it, right? We present it. And so I can present it to the to the person sitting in front of me. Based on everything that you just said to me, these are my concerns. Is anything that I'm thinking valid? And if it is valid, there are some steps we can take. Um, would you like to take these steps, right? So all along, I'm acknowledging where that person is at. I'm not trying to pull them out of their situation. And I'm asking their permission to go down the next step Mm -hmm. of that road. Why? Because I'm concerned about your safety. I'm concerned about you. I want you to be well. I don't want to just be the provider to just tell you what to do. I want to come alongside you. And I want to help you on the road of life that you're on. Exactly. You. There was a a sentence I pulled from the the AAPA article. And for the... um, the listeners, I'm actually I'm gonna link it in the show notes so they can go ahead and read it because it, it truly was. It was an awesome article. Um, you you write that that you say the goal when it is specifically with, with sexual assault, but you could I'm sure you could say it about human trafficking as well. You write the goal is not for disclosure, but rather to create a safe and trusted environment for the patient, which I think is I mean, from everything you're saying, is that that is the point. There, you know, and it and it almost seems counterintuitive. I feel like it's our, it's the instinct for us to be like, we have to get the answers and we, we have to prove it. And there has to be, you know, clear evidence, but you're right. That's, that's not our goal. It, it is to, at the end of the day, 
support right. the patient in their decision and to, to make sure that they're, you know, safe. And I mean, it's instinct, but it's also what we're taught, right? You take someone's blood mm-hmm. pressure, they have high blood pressure, here's medication, right? We're taught to see, treat, diagnose, or, you know, to see, diagnose, and treat. And so it mm-hmm. is very natural to what we do to say, hey, I see a problem. Here's the answer to the problem. Let's fix it. Come back and see me in three months and let's see if it's fixed. If it's not fixed, we're going to try something different or add something else on. But in that situation, my, you know, our role is to diagnose the issue and fix it or attempt to at least, right? Or refer to somebody else who's mm-hmm. going to try to fix it, right? Um, that's, that's, you know, that is our role, right? We are, we're healers. Right? Yeah. When you talk about, you know, again, medicine in general, right? Or this practice of medicine or the study of medicine, right? We study disease, we study, you know, bi- biology and physiology and all of these things so that when all of these systems start looking wrong, we know how to say, okay, I know what's wrong. Let's go in and do something about that. And it is very counterintuitive to see, you know, again, the screen, to see all of these red flags and you're going, yep, 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 I see it. And then you have to take a step back and say, can I help you, right? Because somebody walking in to your office with diabetes knows that they have diabetes and they're there to see you because they want diabetes management, right? In trauma-informed care, you have to assume that this person in front of you doesn't necessarily understand that they are in a trauma crisis situation. And so I just start interjecting solutions to a problem that they don't even realize that they have. How much more traumatic have I just made that situation? How much more control have I exhibited over that person who's already in a situation where they're being controlled? I haven't created trust. I haven't created safety. I haven't created a space for that person to say and do what they can't do in every other abusive relationship that they is. And that's make their own choice. That That is a very, of course, when you say it, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. But you're right. The giving them the control that they don't otherwise have in those other situations in itself is extremely helpful. Yeah. It's, you know, it's what creates, again, simply in just asking somebody a question, right? When you ask somebody, you know, did you understand everything I said? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, um, um, do you have any questions? Different than me asking, well, what questions do you have, right? I'm inviting them into the conversation opposed to saying, well, you don't have any questions. Or do you have any questions? Yeah. Because I'm assuming everything I just said, you understand. So do you have any questions? Yeah, it's even just reframing it can have a big impact. Correct. So whereas what questions do you have? How can I help you? Right? What do you want to do? What are your next best steps? Right? Are you safe? Are there things that you want to think about in looking at your safety? Right? And so inviting that person into the decision making, we have the opportunity, again, to do something that they're not getting in any other space, particularly when we're talking Mm -hmm. about somebody who is in a trafficking situation, right? And I know I try to explain that to people sometimes and they're like, well, you know, well, they're at your office and they're this. And I'm like, well, you have to understand a trafficker. And again, as, um, 
non-personal as it sounds, and it really is. Um, you know, a trafficker is not truly concerned about the health of the person that they're trafficking, right? Um, mm-hmm. As I've heard many traffickers say, it's like taking your car in for a tune-up, right? You want the car to work, you're going to get it fixed wow. when it needs to get fixed. And it's just that impersonal, mm-hmm. right? They're not bringing a person to a doctor's office because they actually care about their health. They're bringing them in because if that person's not well, they're no longer profitable for them. That wow. So a doctor's office, you know, uh, seeing a PA again and, and seeing a provider may be one of the only places where traffickers will bring you know, the person that they're exploiting because they're getting that tuna. So it has nothing to do with actually, again, caring for Mm -hmm. them. But we have a tremendous wide net, right? And this is what I try to tell other PAs, right? You have such a wide net because they're coming in. It's not that they're not coming in. They're coming in. You are seeing them. It's whether or not you actually see them. Yeah. Whether whether that's, like you said, you're asking the right questions and, and paying attention and truly listening. Correct. And that's why, you know, I say it's not, it's not about getting the disclosure. It's never about getting the disclosure because a woman, a man, a child will, may not disclose. I've had, in, I would say, in the so I've worked with sexual assault or again domestic violence, intimate partner violence, traf, anti-trafficking work. I would say for about I would say since 2010. So going on 12, 13 years, I can probably count on my hand the number of times that someone just said, "Yes, I'm being abused." Wow. It's usually after listening, after multiple visits, after multiple questions, but in creating that safe space, Mm -hmm. someone comes back, right? Um, In giving someone time, right? Not the, you know, I need to get on to the next patient and just, and I, you know, again, I understand the way our offices work, but we need to be able to take the time to actually listen. I'll never forget, um, you know, we... I was listening to a survivor panel and, you know, one of the, one of the people said, you know, we can tell when you're not listening. I can tell when they just wanted to move on to my next patient or to the next patient. And that was definitely not somebody I spent time talking to. And I remember when I heard them say that, how it impacted me again, I work in emergency medicine, right? You're constantly moving. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's always going to be another patient. It impacted me. So when I heard them say that, because I was like, wow, is my body language, right? Is my, you know, is, am I even appearing like I'm not listening? Right. How is my posture? How is my body Mm -hmm. language? How am I attentively listening to the person in front of me, even if it is for five minutes? Right. All of that is all a part, again, of when you talk about trauma-informed care and how you actively listen to the person that's in front of you. Because I can, I, I can almost promise you, when we actually stop and actively listen, you will begin to see so much more, so much more. You know, in addition, again, to, you know, getting trained and getting involved, you just, you 
begin to just see it. You begin to just see it. It all starts with creating that, like you said, that that safe and trusting environment. And and I could have, I mean, I, I don't want to say I can imagine, but I guess that, like you said, that doesn't happen in just one one office visit. Usually, it takes you know several office visits, several months, you know, however long before someone does feel comfortable enough to to maybe you know to talk to you about it. Yeah, I mean, I would say on average. I think it's taken like two, three, like between three and four appointments, you know, but it's almost mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like chipping away, you know, because again, if someone's in a situation where they're used to just being controlled, you know, having power exhibited over them, you know, their, um, their personhood not being honored, right? It takes a little bit of chipping away at that to say, you can trust me, right? Because most people in trafficking, particularly sex trafficking, have been groomed to some degree, right? And part Mm -hmm. of grooming is getting that person to trust you, right? Gaining that person's trust so that you can lure them into what you want them to do. And so, you know, trust is a huge issue. Providing that safe space is a huge issue. And so, you know, in the emergency room, obviously it's different because I don't know when that person's coming back, right? And so I will um, resource that person as much as I can and I will sit down and take a few extra moments to talk to them. And if something is a flag or something to me, um, then it's like, okay, listen, I'm going to give you these resources, you know, and I'll give them whether it's a number, whether it's, you know, a little slip of paper that they can stuff somewhere, you know, and say, listen, if you want help if this situation, you know, seems as though, you know, it's, it's, it's relevant to you, please reach out, you know, or please come back, please come see this person, please, you know, so I'll try to resource that person different than when I'm in private practice, right? Because I know I can schedule that person to come back, or I know I'll have some sort of touch base with them. Some sort of follow-up. Correct. Some sort of follow-up. And, you know, that's been, you know, as I call it, the terrible privilege with being a sexual assault examiner, um, you know, it's a very lengthy exam. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're talking about a four to six hour exam. And that's, this is actually a perfect segue because that's one of the the things I did want to touch base is what is a sexual assault forensic examiner? How did you get trained in it? Is it something that you know, anyone can get trained in? So it really depends on your state. Um, so again, you know, I'm in New York. And so in New York State, um, well, let me just back up a little. So most states know it as SANE, which is Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. Um, over the years, that has changed to be a SAFE, which is Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner. And that's because it originated um, with nursing. And so as more providers, you know, clinicians, so PAs um, and doctors Mm -hmm. have gotten involved with um, forensics, then it's now, you know, different states have adopted the sexual assault forensic examiner. Um, And so basically what that means is um, if there is a report or someone comes into the emergency room, whether it is... And there's two different trainings for anyone under the age of 18, so a child or pediatric sexual sexual assault examiner or an adult, and that's anybody over 18, um, sexual assault examiner. Um, 
with any reports of rape, sexual abuse, molestation, you know, anything along that, um, that realm, then we are, when I say we, I mean sexual assault examiners are called in to do, again, a very intensive forensic exam. Um, that exam, um, in, and the reason why I say it's a very long exam, it's four to five hours because we are not only doing like interviewing and really just, again, you know, you're talking about someone who just truly went through a traumatic experience. And so you're mm-hmm. allowing time for the story to unfold, however it needs to unfold, whatever pauses you need to take, you know, there's, there's no rushing, right? There's absolutely no rushing in this. Um, but once you get the interview, then you're doing a physical examination. Um, and this is a physical examination, unlike anything else. Um, this is mm-hmm. to collect any sort of forensic evidence. Um, so it includes taking photos, taking swabs, um, documenting um, from head to toe, including a general exam. Um, and all of that involved as well. And so it's a very long exam. It's a very intimate exam. Um, and it's a very traumatic exam, particularly someone who has just come out of a traumatic situation. Um, but what I can say is I am trained, um, as a pediatric and as a, um, adult. And so again, throughout the years, um, I have also worked with what's called a, um, child advocacy centers. So being able to kind of also see some of the childhood um, or the child um, survivors of abuse, even after they've been seen in the emergency room. And it is a place where PAs and NPs and again, doctors and other people can get involved. Um, It's just, you would have to check with your state. And the reason why I say that um, every county has what's called like a sexual assault coalition. Um, and mm-hmm. so within those counties, you would just um, contact the county and say you want to be, you know, a sexual assault examiner. There are some, and I, sorry, I don't know the states off the top of my head, that are still only nurse dominant. Um, mm-hmm. And that will only hire nurses as sexual assault examiners or sexual assault nurse examiners. Um, but I do know, again, most of the states have moved on to be sexual assault forensic examiners. And that's definitely a place for PAs to become involved. That's a, a you know, a really good a point to bring up as far as, you know, barriers to becoming a, like either a safe or like you said, a, a, it was safe and sane. Sane was the nursing. Yes. Okay. That, you know, it, it does depend on the state, but I'm sure there's, you know, multiple, multiple other ways that people can get involved. Yes. What would you suggest to someone who may, let's say they do work in a state where they, there is no safe, it's only sane? Sure. Well, there's two, two parts to that. So the sexual assault coalition um, within that state or the department of health within that state, because you can also as a PA get trained as a rape crisis counselor. And so even though you may not be doing the exam, you can be in the room while the exam is happening and be mm-hmm. of a support to that, to that person. Um, so again, you're there to kind of, you know, be a part of that interviewing process and be a part of that entire exam. Um, there's also as a provider, 
um, a lot, some of the, what's called like the child advocacy centers. If anybody does want to work with children, you can do the follow-up exams in the child advocacy centers. So once the sexual assault, um, exam has been collected in the emergency room, they make a follow-up, children do, anyone under 18 makes a follow-up appointment with the child advocacy centers. And so you can also go and do the exams on them there. I know a lot of states do hire PAs to do those exams as well. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about, because of course, not only are you talking about a lot of, and, and witnessing a lot of very traumatic experiences I can imagine that that has and and you know it has some sort of impact on you. How have you dealt with all of the things that you've that you've seen or have been disclosed to you? Yes. Um to be perfectly honest with you, um it's in my faith. <laughs> um mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time journaling, praying and crying. <laughs> That sounds that, that does I am not surprised by that. <laughs> um, you know, I take a lot of stories home with me. I take a lot of, you know, as I always call it, it's a terrible privilege, right? It's mm-hmm. it's absolutely horrific to have to be in the intersection of this type of trauma in somebody's life, mm-hmm. right? But it's a privilege to be able to also be used in that place where I can provide some sort of comfort. And so I take, I, I mean, throughout the years, I can't, you know, I, I take many, <laughs> many, many stories home with me. And I just have to, you know, I have great teams, you know, like we'll debrief with one another again, and we'll cry with one another and we'll process with one another. Um, I spend a lot of time in praying and journaling and just, um, releasing, you know, mm-hmm. just some of that vicarious trauma. Um, and then also it's understanding that, um, that I'm not, and I think this has also just been huge that I'm not the savior, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just the helper. And so it keeps me from putting on this mentality of I failed them somehow right? That I didn't help them or that I didn't this because I know there's, this is so much grander than me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to solve it. I'm not going to prevent it. I'm not going to, you know, keep it from ever happening again, but I'll be there for someone when it does, unfortunately, but yet privileged. Now, that is it for all of my questions. Was there anything else that you wanted to um, to talk about or were there any resources you'd recommend listeners know about or check out? Yeah. I mean, I would definitely encourage um, look at look into your communities. There are so many wonderful and great organizations that are doing anti-trafficking work. Um link up with one of them collectively, even if it is just to educate yourself on your area to see, you know, a lot of people I found just throughout the years when I have conversations with them and I give them statistics about the area, they're like jaw dropping to the floor, right? They're like, no way. Yeah, "Yeah, no, yeah way, right? You're like, (laughs) Um, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm, right. So I would say definitely as PAs, know your community, 
right? Reach out to any local, you know, again, anti-trafficking organization and see, you know, what's in your community. You know, if you are a part of a practice, you know, talk to your, you know, your medical directors about doing a trauma-informed training, right? And then take that and, you know, this is how we've actually partnered with, um, in new, in my office in Queens, we work directly with two anti-trafficking organizations. So on one specific day a week, we only see the, um, the, the people who come to us through that organization. And so the one organization that we're currently working with, um, you know, um, works with foreign born, um, um, survivors of trafficking. And so when they come in, we know, you know, this is, you know, a person who has suffered through a, you know, a trafficking situation. All of my staff is trauma informed, but yet we're a medical resource for that agency, right? So where someone who has come out of a trafficking situation, come see a medical professional who is going to treat you with kindness and with dignity, right? Who's not mm -hmm. just going to look at your history and just say, you know, okay, so you've been in prostitution, right? Yeah. Um, so definitely as PAs, again, you know, know your communities, you know, have conversations again with anti-trafficking organizations around you. Um, if you're interested in sexual assault, I mean, again, you know, or being a part of, of forensics um, and doing those examinations, you know, contact the Department of Health in your state, you know, look up your sexual assault, you know, coalition um, in your counties, because I know it's different sometimes, not just per state, but per county. Mm -hmm. So look up your counties, you know, and just say, you know, look at your local um, child advocacy centers and see where you can get involved, right? There's intimate partner training. There's the thing is, at this point, there's so much education out there. There truly is, right? We're not in a day and age where there's not the education available. It's whether or not we're going to take advantage of it. And once we take advantage of the education, we're so much more um, readily able and available to work with you know, communities that we once deemed intimidating, right? Um, we have so much to offer as PAs, and so I just want to encourage my fellow PAs, you know, to really just, you know, dive in, you know, yes, mm -hmm. it's hard. Yes. It's messy. Yes. It hurts. You know, I'm not going to lie and say, yeah. that, right. There's that vicarious trauma that happens, but yet it is so beyond rewarding. You know, that first trip that I took in 2010, you know, when I look over the past 16 years that I've worked, particularly with survivors and victims, you know, all of the experiences, all of the stories, all of, you know, just everything that has been over these 16 years, um, I wouldn't change a thing, you know, but if I knew everything now that I knew then, I might not have stepped into it. Right. But mm -hmm. where I stand today, when I look back, I'm like so grateful, you know, that I've had the opportunity to do the work that I've done. Um, so, you know, allow your careers to take you down those hard paths, because when you get to look back, you realize how rewarding, you know, your work has really been. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me this evening. It's a difficult conversation, but I think it's a, it's an extremely important one and something that needs to to be on on everyone's radar. Well, thank you so much, Morgan, for having me. <laughs> of course. Well, that wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with PA Shante Rodriguez. I want to give a huge thank you to Shante for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. 
I remember seeing her article in Jappa all those years ago and was genuinely fangirling the entire interview. I'll include links to all the organizations that Shantae mentioned, along with some resources I found while preparing for this interview. Those will be found on our website, www.the-apog-podcast.blueberry.net. You can tune in next time where I'll be reviewing the ins and outs of gestational diabetes. Now you can listen to the show on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things we're up to. And lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. Well, that's it. As always, that's the end of my pandering. Until next time, stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye.